Las Cruces today with another community spotlight, and we are back with our spotlight on Baton Memorial Death March. But today, we're actually putting our spotlight on the descendants of those who were actually part of this historic event. Today, I have Greg Villasenor in studio with me. Greg, thank you for coming in and talking with us. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Now, from what I understand is your father was a survivor of the Baton March. Yes, he was. How did this, how has this impacted your family as you grew up, I'm sure? Dad was uh, born and raised in Deming, New Mexico. As young, uh, as young men, teenagers, unlike the teenagers today there, um, they would walk 12 miles from Deming to the Black Range Mountains, rabbit hunting. Which is kind of typical in the typical. Deming area. <laughs> and back in one day. Right. So they could walk. And uh, when he was um, uh, uh, gotten into, when he got into the uh, army, he was 18, and they uh, they shipped him to uh, Pearl Harbor first. He was there for that, but then they shipped him to the Philippines. He was in something called the 200th Coast Artillery, uh, where uh, they uh, fired 155 cannons at aircraft. And, um, but the firing batteries were broken in half. Half went to the European theater to fight Hitler and the, uh, fascists out there in, in, in Europe. So theirs was the 155s. They were reduced to about, uh, 18 firing batteries that were sent to the Philippines. And, um, so the major crux of the fighting in World War II was in the European theater. And when General MacArthur left and said, I shall return, they were running short of ammunition. They were running short of food. And um, when they finally ran out of ammunition, they said, um, they were they called themselves the battling bastards of Bataan. Huh. Because they had lost communication with the United States. So they fixed bayonets, and they were ready to fight a well-armed Japanese imperial army. But General Wainwright, thank God for General Wainwright, he surrendered the largest military surrender in the history of the United States, 36,000 airmen, Navy, Marines, Filipinos, and Army, and they surrendered. But there was this thing with the Japanese that they believed in. It was called Bushido. You don't surrender. Now, the Japanese people are beautiful people. As as you can see in movies like uh, The Last Samurai, the samurai were a beautiful warrior. But Bushido was very, very strong with the Japanese. You don't surrender. Mm -hmm. That's why when they shot down a lot of the Jap Zeros, they would aim their, their planes for the American ships that had just shot them down. In an F, they don't surrender. Mm -hmm. So the Japanese looked at these 36,000 prisoners of war. You can imagine how they looked at them. They, they looked at them like quitters. Mm -hmm. Horrible. And so <clears throat> they surrendered and they were, they have this, uh, you asked me why this is important. I think beautiful thing that they are doing at White Sands Missile Range, which I worked at for 14 years during my federal career. And uh, this walk-run 
is 26 miles. It's not 70 miles. Here they have food stations. They have water medical stations, stations water yes. stations. But that's 26 miles, yes. And I love those young men and women who do this. I thank God they do it, but they didn't go 70 miles um, with no water, no food. So I have a small testimony here. Uh, my dad went, was a prisoner of war with one gentleman called Lee R. Palayo, which ended up, he ended up in Deming with a large farm of onions and chili and beans. But this is what happened to, he wrote this October 22nd, 1973, and it says, to whom it may concern, this is to certify that I, Gregorio M. Villasenor, was a Japanese prisoner of war with Lee R. Palayo at Nichols Field, a prisoner of war slave camp located 12 miles south of Manila, Philippine Islands, from December 6, 1942 to July 1944. This particular work camp was run by the Japanese Imperial Navy, and it consisted of 500 American prisoners, Navy, Marines, and Army. And it is the most notorious in the minds of us who were there for its nefarious, brutal, and sadistic treatment by the Japanese towards American captives. We worked from 7 a.m. in the morning till 7 p.m. in the evening, every day, seven days a week. Rain or shine. Food consisted of a cup of soup made from small fish heads and a cup of rice in the morning, a bowl of rice and a cup of hot water at noon, and a cup of rice for supper. No clothes or shoes were issued, just a straw hat with your POW number and a G-string to cover your vital parts. And this had to be taken good care of for a certain length of time. There was no such thing as sick bay for the sick prisoners. The only way to leave this camp was either to die or get killed. And many prisoners died, and many were killed. We were building a large airstrip with picks and shovels and moving the earth on ore cars, which we pushed on worn-out rails. The ore cars often derailed, especially during rainy seasons. There were several rail lines branching out on each side of the hill, and it was during one of these periods and the fact that the wheels of an ore car that Lee Arpaio and his partner were pushing and were very, was very much out of alignment that caused it to derail several times, whereupon the Japanese guard, guards severely beat Lee Arpaio across his back and shoulders and his partner also, with green bamboo sticks approximately two and a half inches in diameter and about four feet long. A standard rep of the <clears throat> Japanese foreman of each trace line, I witnessed that after other POWs got the ore car back on the trace lines, that Lee Arpilayo got up and fell several times and got up again, and by sheer determination managed to stay leaning on the ore car as if to push. His partner never got up, and he was quickly dragged by the Japanese soldiers to the left side of the embankment and shot in the chest and, and head. His name was Daniel Sanchez and from San Bernardino, California. The rest of us told Lee Arpelayo to hang on to the ore car the best way that he could for the rest of the day. And it was about 3 p.m., February or March of 1944, and after work, Lear Pelayo was in much pain 
and bleeding at the mouth and nose. He was carried shoulder to shoulder by other prisoners back to camp. The next, the next morning, he was carried the same way to work. And by some work of fate, he was put to work sitting on the ground to make wax paper sticks and filling them with dynamite that came in bulk boxes. In July 1944, 250 American prisoners were pulled out of Nicholsfield Prison Camp and taken to Billy Bid Prison. And that was the last time I saw Liar Palayo till about 1969 when I found out that he was still alive and living in Deming, um, New Mexico. I witnessed many beaten beatings, and it was standard procedure for the Japanese administering the beatings to spare the arms and legs. As in their way of thinking, a POW with a broken arm or leg was not able to swing a pick or shovel. So beatings were administered on the shoulders and anywhere else on the back. And this was the case of Liar Perlayo, Gregorio M. Villasenor, retired master sergeant. Now, uh, I remember they took the healthy, the healthy POWs after two and a half years of being in prison in something called the hell ships. These were ships with 500 POWs in the brig, and there was a Jacob's Ladder. And many of, uh, they were being taken to Japan to do forced labor over there for the Japanese war machine. And many of these ships sank by American planes. They thought they were Japanese carrying arms, ammunition, munitions, ordnance. And um, many of them died in the ship that my dad was in particularly, um, it tilted quite a bit. And when they tilt, you can imagine everything that went to the side. And they would climb up the ladder. It was horrible. There were a hundred of them dying a day. It took about four days to go from the Philippines to, to Japan. So when he was there in Japan, 98 pounds, um, one day the guards disappeared. And all this ash from the sky was coming down. And uh, I still remember the white spots on Dad's shoulders. And that was radioactive ash coming from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We had just bombed them. Nuked wow. them. And then all the Japanese guards were gone. and uh the American soldiers, when they liberated them, they were wearing the steel pots and they stared at each other. And they said, they looked at these skeletons of POWs and uh, they tried to feed them. And of course, their stomachs were the size of a pecan. And uh, he was taken finally to uh, San Francisco and then to Beaumont Hospital, where he was put in the VD ward, not to, to insult him, but he did have everything from, as all the other POWs did, beriberi, dysentery, malaria, and many other diseases. So they put him on a bed, but the nurse came in one night and said, Sergeant Villasenor, you need to get up from the floor. And he says, I can't sleep in this bed. Why? I haven't slept in a bed in almost four years. Oh and so, wow. Uh, he did get back up, and that's where he met my mom, and they got married, and uh, he stayed in the Army 20 more years. Oh, my gosh. He was uh, in the Korean conflict. He was in the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
And I remember him. He was a tall man. He wasn't short like me. Mom was five foot one. Dad was six foot tall. All those men were strong. They could walk. <laughs> and uh, I remember he stayed in 27. Now, Gerald Schertz is, uh, is the son of Major Schertz. Major Schertz uh, was in the 515th as a prisoner of war, but he died in prison camp. My dad was his bugler. Of course, they broke my dad's collarbone because he was playing Christmas carols. I said, no, that isn't going to happen in this prison camp. So they tore up his bugle, and they broke his collarbone. But he survived. Gerald Schertz is the son, and he's a colonel, and he's very much involved in the Baton Death March race walk. And thing is, he's not doing too well right now, so I'll probably go look for him today. But... Uh, <clears throat> That's all I have to say, except one thing, and that's, if you notice what I read on this testimony, there's not a word of hate. There isn't. I did notice that. And it's truth, and it is a very hard story to listen to. <laughs> I can't imagine having to live through that, and that's exactly what we're memorializing every year when they do the Baton Memorial that's right. Death March. isn't necessarily... World War II, but who survived? Yes. Who went through these things? And it really is amazing to hear not only an individual story from this time period, but one from here in New Mexico history. I mean, this is part of our state history as well. So it is. It's a beautiful thing to know, even though it was such an ugly time period. Thank it you. Was. Thank you for sharing your father's story. Thank you. There are no more prisoners of war now. They're all past. So this story is like a warning we today need to be vigilant and report anything we can because there are a lot of factions trying to destroy our country. And this is like a warning. Be vigilant, Americans. It's nice to see our descendants carrying on with Baton Memorial Death March. Of course, this is Greg Villasenor. If you would like to hear his father's full testimony, you'll be able to hear it online at lascrucestoday.com. I'll also send links over to batonmarch.com. Of course, that's where you can get the full details on how to volunteer for this organization, get your team registered, and learn more about the history behind the Baton Memorial Death March. We'll be back on Sunday, March 19th at White Sands Missile Range with your Las Cruces Today Community Spotlight.